the everyday world is not data literate, right? We are, we are in the industry because that's the industry we work in. But I would say 90% of people outside of our industry, they haven't got a clue. Whereas at Formula E, we're, we're different, right? We, we have the speed element. And actually, as a car, we are not that much slower than F1, right? Welcome to Data and AI Talks Podcast, your guide to the latest in big data and the artificial intelligence industry. Join us as we interview top experts in the field and explore the upcoming world of technology. Tune in and let's talk. Welcome to the Data and AI podcast, where we try to teach you three or four interesting new things about data and AI while you're driving to work. If you like our content, please follow us in YouTube and in Spotify. This will help us tremendously. My name is Vincent Spruit, and in daily life, I'm a data engineer career coach. We help data engineers to get better at their job, to also find out the things that they love and to move into the right direction. Today, we're going to talk about Formula E. I'm a huge Formula One fan, and therefore, it's a big pleasure and honor to speak with our guest today. With me today is Matt Roberts, the Business Intelligence Director of Formula E. Welcome, Matt. Thank you. Great to be here. So... Um, First, let's address your camera. It's been uh, you're in England. It's a little bit misty, it seems. I don't I don't know what on earth's gone wrong with the technology today, but fortunately, I have a slightly misty camera. So apologies. I'm not in the middle of like a desert of a sandstorm or something. But it's uh, yeah, not a cool story, but it's just the technology and the sound is great. So that's uh, that's fine, Matt. Um, you have a big background in sports. Uh, let, let's focus mostly on the the, the, the last part because you. Um, you worked for amazing channels, ESPN, uh, Sky, and, and Formula One uh, in the last uh, years, and now you're working at Formula E. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I've been working in sort of research and data for around 20, 21 years or so. Um, before that, I studied at uh, Bath University in Western England. Uh, I did French and German and European politics. So. Not nothing to do with with research data, nothing to do with marketing or anything. So I kind of sort of fell into this industry, I guess, as as a lot of people do. I mean, not a lot of yeah, you know, us older ones probably have fallen into it because you didn't have the opportunities to study it back in the day. I probably spent the first seven or eight years of my kind of career um, at research agencies. So I started at Millwood Brown, then I worked in radio, in press, um, in the UK. But I always had two passions. One was sport. I used to play tennis quite um, seriously. And um, then I kind of quit tennis and became a big kind of runner. I, I've run quite a lot of marathons and half marathons and um, still still trying to, my, to this day in my 40s doing it. I keep getting injured now. It's the problem. I'm getting older. My, my joints aren't as strong as they once were. You don't um, want to accept it. But you said you, you ran it under three hours. That's a... The accomplishment of a lifetime. Yeah, no, I did a two fifty-seven. I did once. Uh, I got so close on so many occasions to beat three hours for a marathon, and then one time I did three hours and six seconds. So I was six seconds short, and I literally, I, I was like crying on the finish line. It was well, so... for me, for me, six seconds is probably a lot. Yeah, probably in the world of motorsports, six seconds is a lot. But marathon running is like, yeah, I could yeah. have done one quick sprint at the beginning, and I would have done it six seconds quicker. Yeah, so sport was always my passion. And obviously, you know, my language background, the kind of multicultural kind of international aspect was always interesting as well. So I wanted to work 
a bit more for an international business rather than just UK. I wanted to work a bit more in sport. And then a role came up at Eurosport. So I applied for a job at Eurosport uh, being like their research manager. So essentially um, managing all their TV viewing data, doing market research projects, et cetera, et cetera. And I got that role. And then since then, I've been in sport ever since. That was back in 2008. So about 15 years later, I've had, um, I've done very similar kind of research data roles at ESPN, who came into the UK and bought some Premier League rights, BT Sport, again, working on their Premier League rights, Sky Sports, who are the, the biggest sports channel in Europe, I think. Again, really understanding around subscribers, how do they grow sports subscribers, what content works, what content doesn't work. So lots of kind of strategic work there. You know, I was telling you before before we started recording that I essentially was out of the blue contacted by um, sort of someone who I worked with at ESPN many moons ago who was kind of like my boss's boss's boss. Um, And he just said, do you want to meet this week? I've got a job for you at F1 if you want it. And so, yeah, I became the research director for Formula One. Um, The first ever uh, time Formula One had ever had any research or data other than the data on the cars, which was very well advanced and very advanced. But in terms of the business of Formula One, in terms of, fandom, TV audience growth, understanding how data helps with sponsorship, revenue, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. They'd never, ever invested in that side. So I was the first ever sort of research and data person at Formula One. I set up a team of five of us um, and I was there till 2021. And and then another opportunity came up over Formula E, where I am now. I kind of sensed Formula One was changing direction a little bit. Um, they had a new... The new CEO came in. He was a bit less data-centric. So I got given the opportunity to come over Formula E. And, and again, as we spoke earlier, Formula E really needs to understand its fans, really needs to understand um, how it grows its business. Uh, and actually now I have a team of like 12 people, which is more than double the size of Formula 1. Again, to your point of we need more of that work here to really help us as a business grow, but also be accountable for our sponsors because we're not as big as Formula One is. Yeah, and understanding the the clients or the customers, or in this case, the, the viewers, I think it's important for every sport. Do you see this as a this, this job market where you're in? Is this something growing in general? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, yeah, if you five years ago, there wouldn't have been many jobs like mine out there. There would have been only at the very big organizations the Premier League, the NFL, the NBA, and yeah, none of the football clubs, like, you know, the Premier League is the biggest um, sort of, you know, football league in the world. None of the clubs had any inside team except for, I think, Man City and Liverpool, which which shows and how good those teams are. Everyone else, they had nothing, right? They were using consultants or they were using agencies or they were using. And now, five years later, even you know, six years later, they're all investing all I see on LinkedIn is new roles, inside manager for Southampton, inside manager for Burnley FC, Wolves, all these clubs that are smaller clubs that five, 10 years ago, they would not have had anyone working in those roles. So it's definitely something that in Europe, and I think probably in Netherlands, it's probably similar, and in Spain, in, in Germany, in France, it's it's definitely, we, we've taken a bit longer than the US to catch on in this area. The US, they're much more advanced than us, right? They've you go to the US, all the NFL teams, they've already got 20, 30 people working in this area. The big leagues have got 20, 30 people working in this area. Whereas in Europe still, even though we are branching out, you still have like 
the Premier League has two people. And yeah. NFL in Europe has one person. The you know, clubs, football clubs, that have one person in the UK or two people. They're really small. You have the biggest team of Europe. I think we probably do have the biggest team in Europe. Yeah, you have seven people, I think, or of a of a sports rights holder. I don't think any sports rights holder has twelve people. Ah, wow. Yeah. So, but it seems so obvious because if you understand your uh, client base better and, and you are able to make more money with it, you will be able to attract better sponsors and all that. But uh, before we get into that, can you explain what is the difference between Formula E? And Formula One, because Formula One, of course, is known, I think, by everybody in the world. Formula E, a lot less. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it, very simply, we are like the electric version of F1. Um, it's probably a very easy way to describe us. It's a very, very lazy way as well, because we are very different as well at the same time. And, you know, we have a very different story, a very different narrative to F1. Yeah, F1 is was always about being technologically the quickest and you know, speed was key to 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 the experience of F1. Whereas at Formula E, we're, we're different, right? We we have the speed element, and actually, as a car, we are not that much slower than F1, right? Two hundred miles an hour versus two hundred and ten miles an hour, I think, is the FE versus F1 maximum speed. But we have the kind of sustainability and social impact angle which F1 doesn't have, and they're trying desperately to come into this space. But we own it, and we've owned it since. We launched in 2014, right? We, you know, we've been net zero since 2014. And back then, I think people kind of laughed and were like, who are these kind of eco warriors? And now you look at the world as it is now, and suddenly we are, you know, owning that space is a really good place to be. It's helped us with sponsors. Um, it helps us with our audience as well. So Formula E is both the youngest and the most female sport of all the global leagues. If you look at the fan demographic, so... You know, younger people care about the environment and they care a lot more than older people do if you look at kind of stereotypes and stats and values. So it's a real opportunity for us to prove that we are a diverse sport, we're younger, we're more female, which makes us again more attractive to sponsors, right? If you look at F1, you exclude the US, exclude Asia, exclude, and you look at just a European F1 fan, you know, the average age is definitely over 50 years old. It's white, white, gray-haired men, in their 50s watching you know in another room away from their family and that sounds stereotypical me saying that because you probably tell me that all of your 20 odd year old friends they love f1 but if you look at the tv viewing numbers you look at the fan numbers you look at the data that i had access to for four years this was the truth right in, in italy 55 is the average age of an f1 fan so f1 is an aging sport in europe whereas fe is this great opportunity to own that younger space um and it helped by our story. Yeah, I think, well, Netherlands is maybe not compar compar uh, comparable to the rest of the world because we all follow Max Verstappen. Yeah. And we only got, became fans uh, when he came in. But yeah, the rest of the world, I do think it was an older man sport for sure. Yeah, definitely. So the data we, we, we think about with, with Formula Sports is the data in the car, which you already said that what you're on about is much more the business side of it, attracting more fans. Can you tell me what kind of data you guys are measuring? And because I saw you in the um, data event two weeks ago, you gave a brilliant speech about the, 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 the kind of new things that you were using. I thought, wow, that's amazing. And that's also why I decided to invite you for this podcast. But can you tell me something about the data that you are using? Yeah, it's a whole range of uh, data and information. So. The main one is probably TV audience data, really understanding you know, who's watching our sport, 
TV is the number one medium to watch our sport, right? So how how people are, who's watching our sport, how many of them are watching, but also using that TV data for strategic questions. So if we moved our start time by one hour back or forward, if we had a night race rather than a day race, if we raced in Tokyo or Cape Town, or what would that give our audience? Or And, and we do lots of scenario planning and models based on our TV data. So that data is one big facet. We do a similar thing with digital where we do lots of work around you know, what content is working on digital, on our web site, on app, on our socials, what content isn't working. And we feed all that back to digital guys and they can then plan their strategy off the back of that. We are doing lots of strategic sort of projects as well where we are buying in, um, sorry, where we're doing kind of bespoke research projects. So we are doing survey work with you know, research agencies to try and understand who are our fans, how do we grow fans, you know, who are potential fans of the future, how does that differ by market. So we do lots of work around that. And then we also, we use quite innovative things as well, like um, when you go to one of our races, there we, we use something called Wi-Fi analytics where we measure people by their mobile phone, where their mobile phone is setting off a signal, it gets picked up by sensors that we place around the circuit and we can understand vincent he arrived at well, actually we wouldn't know your name sorry we wouldn't know your name your age or anything because it's a very ip off- number xx or yeah yeah his, there. his mobile phone arrived at 9 a.m yeah. and, and he left it or he they <laughs> he or she uh left at 6 p.m and in the, the eight hours that they were here they went here here and here whatever this is we use this data quite a lot to understand how do we improve our events so we have lots of there's tons of data, tons of numbers, and our job as a team is to just understand how we how we provide that information to different people across the business, as well as uh, as well as kind of educating people. Because I don't know organisations you've worked for before, but people generally the everyday world is not data literate, right? We are we are in the industry because that's the industry we work in. But I would say. 90% of people outside of our industry, they haven't got a clue. They see a number yeah. and they like, they take numbers, they pick numbers, they go, they misquote numbers. They're always saying it wrong. Like Bernie Eccleston at F1 used to say that they had 6 billion fans. This was not true. This was just a, a cumulative TV audience number he'd seen over a couple of years. I mean, but yeah, people are always misquoting, giving the wrong number. So that's our job to educate and make sure numbers are being used properly, correctly, people understand the narrative around numbers. There's a lot there, but you you try to make the, the numbers uh, uh, understandable. Do you make stories, like uh, yeah. data stories for the sponsors, for, for who, who else? Exactly, yeah. So we do lots of reporting for partners, but also lots of internal teams as well, right? So, so like the marketing team, you know, they're going to go out and plan their strategy for season 10. So we'll go to them and we'll give them information around, well, these are your people who are your fans at the moment, but if you want to target these fans in Tokyo, these are the messages that they want to hear. So we'll give them that kind of insight. The problem is we have so much insight. It's about finding the right data for the right people. So we'll speak also to um, you know the people who arrange the calendar. So again, you know they're planning now for next year's out like season ten. They're planning for like. 2025 2026 so they're always looking ahead so we'll give them the information they need to know around fans we'll give the talent team so they're booking celebrities to come to our race next year they want to know which celebrities are going to drive fandom the most so we'll give them information around data around celebrities and influencers so we 
Our job Make is sure to get some PV time as well. Exactly. So we're, we're disseminating all this information the whole time to yeah. sponsors as well as lots of internal teams. Also, the you know the most important people with the C-suite level of our business, right? The, our investors, they want to know as well about how we're doing as a sport. So they're constantly, we're constantly reporting on how well we're doing in terms of our TV, digital. How you're improving. Yeah, and how we're growing. Yeah. Yeah. So you told uh, us last time as well in the event that you are measuring how long people on average are watching and that it's a KPI for you. Yeah. Can so, you tell us something about that? Yeah, again, that we can we can work all this out via the TV audience data. So we can uh, we get a time spent metric so we can understand. So the average Formula E viewer now watches for about 16 minutes, 15, 16 minutes. Yeah. When, we, when I joined two years ago, it was about 12 minutes. So we've increased... The average viewership, which is really great, but you know we want to go further. We want to, you know, our race is about forty-five to fifty minutes. So the average person comes in for fifteen minutes, then they leave. Formula One, for example, is thirty minutes is the average person, which their races are more than double our races often. So we are comparable with Formula One in terms of our engagement. So we're happy with that. It's definitely a key metric for us because the longer people watch, the longer the more engaged they are. It helps us to grow engagement with our sport. So what can you do to make them watch longer? So we can improve the coverage. So we do lots of work around what is it that turns people off? Why do people only stay for 15 minutes? We do research. We do biometric testing where we have people wear a device on their hands and we measure when they're most engaged, when they're least engaged during a race. So we can say, actually, the reason why all these people switched off here was because we were showing too many replays or they were bored of... We were showing an onboard camera of the leader and there was no battles going on and it was boring for them. Or there was a, a, a red, a, a yellow flag. People got bored by the safety car. If we had shown them replays or we'd gone back and shown them something else, they may have stayed. So we start, we work very closely with that broadcast team and they test with us lots of hypotheses. They come back and they say, right, we're thinking about doing this, putting more replays here or doing a split screen here. What would that do with the audience? And then we'll test that against our audience. And that helps us understand what would drive engagement, what would reduce engagement. And then we can feed that back to that team. And I think the split screen is also something you see more and more. I think yeah. uh, there's a lot there. You can show different images and you the viewer will just watch whatever is most interesting for him, of course, maybe the live race, maybe a, um, something that just happened in the race or maybe switch to a, a famous person, as you said before. I think exactly. it's... You, you, it it's measures the, the, the sweat particles, you said? Yeah, so it measures your skin response. So if you're, I mean, it's very small levels, right? If you if you are engaged, your skin tone changes, right? You you either sweat, if you're a really sweaty person, it gets really excited. But even a very small change in your engagement level, you would small, you know, droplets of water, which you wouldn't even, none of us would even see, droplets of sweat would, would would come from your skin and that will measure that will denote your engagement against the device that people wear. So that's amazing. Do you feel like the data that you're using, um, because you are basically a company um, trying to improve the, the, the bond with, with your clients, do you see that the things that you are doing is also applicable for other industries and, and companies in, in general? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I, I think Obviously, a lot of the research around understanding who your fans are and how to be great fans and, and perceptions, etc. I mean, that that can be just very 
transferable to how do you grow customers, right? You know, for yeah. us, fans equals customers. So I think this is key. I think, you know, lots of people do do events. So if you are a company that is running events, I think there's many things that, that we do to measure the impact of those events, like the sensors that I talked about. You know, for example, Sky, it's a TV business, but they did lots of, you go to any shopping centre in England and they have all these kind of like stands where they're trying to sell you Sky. Like, you know, they could use those sensors on the on their on their displays to understand how many people walked past, how many people came up, who were interested. So there's use cases across so many different industries, conferences, I guess, as well. You know, if you if people go to a conference or you're you're a business that advertises at a conference, you can use sensors to understand well how many people attended, how many people like had an opportunity to see your stand or your advertising or or whatever. So there's lots of things we do. Even though we're at sports events, many companies also, you know, they are using events or they're using occasions that we could measure that impact. Also, things like with the sweat analysis, the biometric work I talked about, you know, you could do that for TV advertising. So if you are Sky and you you have a brand new TV ad and you want to measure the impact of that ad, you could ask a group of people to wear that device in their hands and you'll see the points in the ads, they're most engaged and least engaged. Says, mm. The use case is endless, right? You can use it for everything. Like maybe you would need to um, recognize in, in facial expressions, like because I think a lot of people already have a camera in the house that yeah. registers where they are looking, but yeah, it's also privacy maybe. But in no, general, no, you, can, you can you can do that research. I've 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 done some before where you you essentially you see where people are like the hot spots of an ad and where people are looking, and it's really really like great uh, like innovation, right? You can. So you play your ad and you can see like all the hotspots. So are people actually looking at the brand or are they looking at the, I don't know, if there's a really interesting thing on the ad. that You, you, have, you have some really great examples where people just are ignoring the brand, the brand gets no one looking and, I, and everyone's yeah. just looking at the really funny bit or the exciting bit of the ad. And it's, yeah, brands are using Sky. We use this a lot at Sky to measure our Sky sports ads. So, you know, we would do things like, we would we would test different price points. So, you know, if it was eight pounds a month, ten pounds a month, fifteen pounds a month, and you could then start seeing the kind of the engagement level when the price came on the screen, but also where people were looking. And when the price was more expensive, people were not looking at that expensive price as much. They were turned off by it. Whereas when it was lower, they were looking and then their engagement level gone up because it might be that, you know, three months free, the word free, suddenly everyone's eyes are glued to the word free or something. So there's so many great cases where you can use research and data to to help you tell your story and help you understand what works with customers and what doesn't work with customers. Yeah, obviously the, the events can be better, you know, where the people are lining up, where are they standing, you know, even if you yeah. had enough toilets probably. But um, that, that's, that's an obvious uh, one. I, I guess also for every company that uses marketing onto how to better uh, find who are your customers. You should use data for that. And also, how can you keep them in your website longer or your web shop or guide them to the right things? How can you let them buy more? I saw the speech from Ikea as well. They, they A-B test continuously with different images, yeah. images that people made from home, images that they make professionally, different coloring. Like There's so much to learn. And it also changes, right? Because things that we might like 10 years ago, we might not like... 10 years from now, or it depends on who your audience is that you're trying to target. If only young people buy a certain product, you need to engage with them differently than the old things. 
Yeah, I also think you companies that test all this stuff, they are doing better than companies that don't because you like back 10 years ago, it's often the marketing director would say, no, this is the route we take. And people would say, well, where's the evidence? He would say, I'm the boss, my decision, right? No evidence at all. And now every uh, all these big companies are spending lots of money on marketing and they need to be accountable for every penny they spend. So they need proof that it works. And this is why my our world is really key because they use our world to give them the ammunition to prove their strategy. To, to finalize, because we're running... Uh... Towards the end, everybody's already r arriving to their job right now. How do you see the Formula E uh, evolve? Do you maybe see that the Formula One and Formula E gets closer together? Because they are complete different organizations, right? Yeah, I mean, the we have a exclusive deal with the FIA. We're the only um, electric single-seater series. We have, we have exclusivity, so... If Formula One couldn't tomorrow say we are going electric because they wouldn't have a Formula but they couldn't be part of the FIA if they did that. So they're not going to do that. They can go hybrid like they are now or whatever, but they can't ever go fully electric. So yeah, they might one day need us to 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 advance their own technology. It's uh, people who get paid a lot more money than me who are going to make those decisions and decide what happens in the future. But yeah, who knows? You know when. 2035 comes along and every country is no longer making petrol or diesel cars and and the manufacturers they want to sell their electric versions and they can't sell it via f1 maybe then f1 will have a chat with us i don't know i mean it's a it's a hypothetical thing that uh, only a few people will you know will be privy to that information probably not me i'm probably not probably not important enough but um i think we all have a view that you know, in 10 years time things could be very different and for sure your fan base will be much bigger. You will understand them much better because you have even more data probably and better ways of processing it and telling the story to all of your uh, sponsors. Well, I think um, that the things that are uh, that you're doing, I think that this is a, still a an, an job and an industry that is in the beginning. Uh, it will evolve so much more. There will be so much more need for people like you. And I think all organizations will see that and, and start to adapt. Well, thank you, yeah. Thank you so much for uh, joining me. Is there any last thing that you want to share? No, not really. I think uh, I think we've we've put the world to rights and we talked a lot. So yeah, no, and just um, yeah, maybe try Formula E in uh, season ten, which starts in January, and, and give it a go. And you know, we do we do have a few Dutch drivers in there, so it could good. Could be, could Where do be, we watch it? Do you know? Uh, Zigo Sport. Okay. So we have so, uh, yeah. Just find yeah. the channel. And uh, and it's also on different weekends than the Formula One, right? So Yeah, yeah. I think there's one or two clashes over the year, but it's on Zigo Sports. So if you have a look, see, it's normally on a Saturday afternoon. So it's on a different day. F1's normally Sunday um, and, and we're on a Saturday. If you cannot get enough of your sports, join Formula as well. There's more sports out there and, and, and they're completely eco-friendly or they're trying to be, they're at least more eco-friendly than the Formula One. So that's great. Exactly. Exactly. And they have more women, which is also good. Attract more of the world. Thank you so much uh, to all the listeners and viewers. I would uh, friendly like to ask you, please follow us, subscribe to our uh, podcast in YouTube and Spotify and soon also in Apple uh, Music, I think. Thank you so much and bye-bye. <laughs>